and welcome to the Vertiguys show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We are here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are covering Hellblazer, issues 47 through 49. We are coming off of Garth Ennis' first story arc on this character, Dangerous Habits, and moving into uh, a couple of standalone stories. Not standalone issues, per se, because one of these standalone stories plays out over two issues while the other one takes one. Yeah, there's kind of a running theme throughout these issues, and I guess we'll come to that when we get into it. The main thing that we need to know at this point is that John used to have a friend named Brendan. He was very good friends with Brendan and with Brendan's girlfriend, Kit. Brendan has since died of liver failure, and John just ran into Kit recently. Yeah, it's also worth noting that... Brendan and Kit were broken up for many years. Yeah, that's before, right. Before he died. It's not like she's... I mean, she is mourning the death of Brendan, but she's not mourning the death of her boyfriend. Right, yeah, fair enough. It's also probably worth mentioning that after the shit he had to do to get out of dying of cancer in Dangerous Habits, John is kind of mystically lying low for a while. All right. Well, let's get into Hellblazer number 47, The Pub Where I Was Born, written by Garth Ennis, Pencils by Will Simpson, inks by Stan Locke. Colors by Tom Zuiko, and on this cover by Tom Conti. It's a pub, it's full of people, and one of them is a ghost. Yeah, there's a ghostly white figure in front of the folks in the pub, kind of looking directly into the camera. Now, this title is taken from a lyric from the song Sally McLennan by the Pogues. Oh, awesome. Another Pogues reference from Garth Ennis. Yeah. We ended the last story arc on a pretty big one. Yeah, that's right. He used the Pogues just last issue to wrap up Dangerous Habits. He quoted Rainy Night in Soho. So we are about to jump into another Ennis favorite topic, the favorite old neighborhood bar. Yeah, the man loves a good bar. He seems like a bit of an expert. Yeah, he comes back to this in, I mean, Preacher is currently hanging around in a friendly old bar that's run by his mom. Although, a lot of the people who hang out there are kind of shitheads. But... The final story arc of Hitman revolves heavily around the hero's favorite bar, and Ennis had a nice little essay about his favorite old bar in one of the forewords to the preacher trades. So, Yeah, I, I don't mean to throw shade on the guy. I think I like bars just as much as he does, but I'm just less articulate. <laughs> <laughs> so we open here on a, a couple of pages of history of the Northampton Arms. Well, history and kind of waxing poetic about it. He's talking about how great the pub is, and he says, It was old-fashioned without being twee, and had a kind of familiar used feel to it that put most people at ease straight away. A thoughtful visitor once said it had that twilight quality that all the really good pubs had, a disguising veil that set it apart from the outside world and let you do what you want without fear of interruption. You could get drunk or stay sober, and the pub provided a sanctuary for any such behavior. I also like this line, Pensioners would sit comfortably at the back and talk about old times that grew better the older they got. And then he complains a little bit about the, the new bars that are kind of taking over the country. The plastic and gold monstrosities full of fake marble floors and nauseating designer lagers. Yeah, this is the kind of comfortable old hole in the wall that doesn't have any pretensions. Yeah, I like both types, really. I like a pretentious place, too, <laughs> now and then. But... It's a different time. It's 20... Almost 30 years since this comic came out, but I do enjoy a designer lager. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I think that's a different 
that's a problem that we can't quite relate to, right? Because this was before the microbrewing craze. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, so when he says designer lagers, I don't think he means, like, what we think of as, like, snooty microbrews, because that wasn't really a thing yet. He must mean something else. I guess one assumes that he means, like, designer lagers put out by major brewers. I guess so. I don't know. Somebody who knows more about, like, what drink was like in the early 90s should should tell us. If you are an expert on the history of beer, we would like to hear from you. And potentially even talk about comics with you. (laughs) (laughs) So the Northampton Arms is run by Freddie and Laura Collins. Now, Laura was actually born there in 1940, which gives us the title. Right, it justifies his use of that line. Yeah. There was a crashed German bomber in the streets that prevented her mother from reaching the hospital, so she ended up being born in the pub. And 20 years later, she met Freddie, who was at the time tending bar there. And they're like a very steady couple. They've never been super big and dramatically passionate about each other, but they've always been in a very stable and loving relationship. They were a happy couple. Not deliriously so, but content, and very much in love. Anyways, he dies... And he apparently promised Laura before his death, I'll always be here to look after you in this place. I'll stay. Yeah, there's an interesting shift in perspective here, because this last panel, this last bit of the anecdote is the part that only Laura knows. That's not part of the reputation of the Northampton Arms. Right, it's it's an omniscient narrator. Or it kind of feels like Constantine at the beginning of the spiel, and it becomes an omniscient narrator at the end. Or maybe it's Constantine with the benefit of some years to have pieced this all together. Yeah, it, it suddenly becomes a bit more personal at the end, and, and that sort of gives us the personal stakes for this adventure that Laura has a love for the pub that perhaps not even Constantine understands. Yeah, and we get this full-page splash of Laura working behind the pub, and there's the ghost of her husband behind her. Following on his promise, I'll stay. Maybe he did. Now the narration is definitely Constantine. Yeah, and we go to new scene, Constantine's apartment, and he is explaining that he took a month to mourn for his friend Matt, who died of cancer at the end of Dangerous Habits. Today I was supposed to pull myself together, clean clothes, shower, shave. Except, here's the thing. On this page, he doesn't look like he needs to pull himself together. He looks like he has. Yeah, he looks very neat. He's even wearing a tie. Yeah, it's interesting. Constantine's mode of dress has always been kind of a relic of a different age. I mean, I I don't know if it's a different age per se than the one that he's living in, but it's definitely a different age than the one we're living in, where, like, a guy can have on a button shirt and tie and still be considered slobby, <laughs> you know? <laughs> this is not the way that, this is not the way that, this is not ratty dressing today. Yeah. He's still wearing a suit. Right. Like, he could be a lot lazier. It goes hand-in-hand hand with the P.I. thing, maybe. Oh, I mean, he never actually takes a P.I. case, but... Oh, yeah, perhaps it's that. And that's something we can kind of relate to. It's like a guy who's wearing, like, a, a cheap bad suit. I mean, it's probably really wrinkled and, and dirty, but he always wears a suit. There's a knock at the door, and it's Kit. Now, Kit spends the next page noticing what a shithole John's apartment is. God almighty, don't you ever clean the bog? What's all the black lumpy stuff behind the sink? That's probably just pieces of four-month-old lung tissue, love. Don't worry about it. I guess he just, like, waits for demons to burn his apartments down instead of cleaning. So, 
Is this the first time he's seen Kit in all this time? I think so. He has a line here that mentions that she's been giving him space since Matt died. Okay. But they make plans to see each other that evening. Yeah, he says here that he's not a shoulder-to-cry-on type. It seems to me like he's more of a drink-himself-to-death type. Maybe he ought to get himself a new type. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the type that he is is not healthy. But he adds that he's thinking things he shouldn't be. Or should I? As he thinks about Kit. Yeah, and we see him with this kind of, like, schoolboy-esque lovelorn expression on his face. <laughs> she, uh, waves back at him. Uh, she's down on the street now, having left, and he's up at the window. And she waves back at him, knowing without having to look that he's watching her. <laughs> That's a nice moment. They are, of course, meeting at the Northampton Arms, where John is planning to uh, beat Chaz at poker later tonight. So he spends a quiet day with no mystical nonsense, sitting in the park, feeding the ducks. He notices that he's managed to avoid both weirdness and smoking for the entire day. Oh yeah, that's right, he hasn't had a smoke. Uh, and then a shitty kid comes along. <laughs> he has a moment here where he's thinking about retiring. He's explicitly thinking about retiring from mystical nonsense. Yeah, time to grow up. And he says, Here you go, fellas. Don't do any rude things with crucifixes, okay? Do you always talk to ducks, arsehole? Well, I didn't give him a British accent, and then he said arsehole, so... That's fine. <laughs> British enough. <laughs> he probably, you know, little kids, they watch so much TV, they all have American accents. That's where he learned that all of his speech pattern, except for his profanity, was right. from the American television on Sky One. But I want to I follow, I want to include this punchline, too, because it's worth it. The youth of today hope the little turd will be a bit more respectful when he gets out of that pond. <laughs> this is very similar to the bit where he destroyed the trucker's tires back in... And this is first or second issue. Yes. He's just, he's just walking away thinking about how he has gotten him some vengeance that we didn't get to see. That we didn't see, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is odd because it means that Constantine canonically won a fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's mean. <laughs> Which... <laughs> no, there was actually a whole chapter that we didn't see where it turned out that he, like, tricked three other kids into forming an enmity with that kid. <laughs> Right, yeah, that must be what it was. And then uh, one of the members of the Newcastle crew got killed somehow. Constantine just does not do that. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Like, in the middle of his bopping around the pond, trying to... Trying to persuade the ducks to gang up on the kid. <laughs> right, or do whatever he has to do with the pond side quest. Emma comes back, and he's like, how? And she's like, I don't know, it's a miracle. And then, like, at the end, like, the ducks kill her, too. <laughs> So, it's the awful price. That's so terrible that I've just got this, like, Legend of Zelda episode in my head now where she's pecked to death by ducks. Oh, God. Yeah, that got gruesome pretty fast. Yeah, and, and as he's thinking this, he's sidling up to the bar at the Northampton Arms. He chats with Laura here. She mentions that her landlord, Mr. Carson, is selling the place. John is kind of dismissive of her concern here. He says... Basically, not to worry about it, because the new owner would be daft not to keep her on as manager. That's assuming the manager wants to have a pub, which is assuming a lot. Yeah. But I always get worried about this stuff, John. You just never know. If Freddy was alive... If Freddy was alive, love, he'd say exactly the same thing I did. Don't worry. Now, she has a face that looks not reassured in the least. So Chaz shows up, and they sit down to a poker game with Chaz's cabbie friends. And John is handily whipping everybody at poker. This is sort of his secondary mutation. He just happens to be amazingly lucky at gambling. Pleasant enough, but they're none too bright. 
perfect poker opponents. We learn here that Chaz has paid off his loan shark, so that's a little a little weight off of our shoulders, in case you were still worried about that turning into a plot at some point. Uh, yeah, I guess it's it's a weight off your shoulders if you spend a lot of your time worrying about Chaz. <laughs> Which is, you're a better friend to him than Constantine. <laughs> he has an idea for a new business, which is a delivery service for chip shops. Oh yeah, I wrote Chaz Invents Grubhub. <laughs> the Grubhub is successful. Yeah. And John doesn't think it's a good idea. And this is another another funny little match cut. As Chaz says with an incredible look of innocence, so what do you think? And we cut to Chaz is a bit miffed when I tell him exactly what I think. Well, it's what we think. The other cavies don't like the idea either. And I wasn't super clear on this. I, I wondered if it's because, like, the comic is just taking it as a given that Grubhub is a bad idea, <laughs> or if it's because a similar service already existed, and they have to tell him that. Yeah, or, or maybe the assumption is that places that want to have delivery already do. Chaz mentions that pizza places and Chinese places already do delivery. Right. So maybe it's that, you know, any place that doesn't already do that doesn't have it in the budget to pay Chaz anything for it. Right, whatever. So with Chaz off sulking, John and the cabbies chat about the sale of the pub. Anyone else heard this about the Northampton? Carson's selling up? Yeah, but it shouldn't make any difference, should it? I don't know. Normally I wouldn't worry. But Joe Hollis has been in to talk to Laura. Oh, I know him. Surprised he's still going. Yeah, but he's not the man he was. Last summer he was walking home smashed and he stopped for a slash off a bridge. Thought it was over a river, you know. Turns out it was over a tube line. Silly bastard pissed onto the live rail and the current shot up the piss and fried his tackle off. Ever since then he's had sort of a death wish, I suppose. If he has been in to see Laura, she ought to watch herself. He's a friggin' nutter. Okay, so this immediately struck me as like a prototype for another character that we've met. Oh, you're talking about the Italian guy from Preacher. Yeah, Frankie the Eunuch. Frankie the Eunuch. Right. Yeah, a very different story as to how he... Lost his tackle. Lost his tackle, lost his business. We could come up with euphemisms for a few minutes here, um, but... Lost his business just sounds like he, you know, was running a restaurant or something and it had to close. <laughs> lost his business is, I suppose, what's about to happen. And that's horrible. But yeah, Frankie maybe had a little less of a death wish. He sort of channeled his frustrations into sadism. But it kind of works out the same. They're, they're a dangerous person. A menace to our heroes. Much like Spider-Man. One of the guys lays down a straight five to the nine. And John lays down another straight ten to the ace. They make a nice set, don't they? So Chaz knows better than to come back and play another hand, and John is expecting Kit any time now, so he quickly wraps up his game against the other cabbies. And returns outside. Or yeah, not outside, but to the front room. They've been in the back room of the pub. Yeah, and, and so we see here just that he is that astonishingly lucky at cards. Well, yeah, lucky or cheating or doing some kind of magic, we don't know. Right. Kit shows up and John joins her at the bar. I'd imagine you don't want to risk the Guinness, he says. Should be all right in bottles. No glass, okay? So this is a callback to something that Brendan Finn said back in number 42, that he tried the stout in England for his sins. Even the Irish stout, if you get it from an English tap, is no good. Right. And Kit is also Irish, apparently also has standards in her drinking, and, and will not drink the pub stout from the tap. Yeah, and we see here that the barman who waits on them is kind of bad at it. There's John. a lot of just uh, local color. Yeah. So John is feeling old, 
which leads Kit to ask, Nobody special to look after you. John quickly sums up his last several girlfriends. Well, after Emma, there was Zed, who turned out to be a bit much for me to handle, and Marge was nice, but she wanted me to settle down. Bad news. He says that he can't settle down because he'd be a terrible dad. Kit reveals that she is the same way, it turns out. She uh, clears out the moment a boyfriend starts talking marriage. Well, they're talking about bad habits, and that gets them talking about Brendan. And she concludes, Oh, he was king of the bad habits he was. Suppose they killed him in the end. Still, better to booze out than to fade away. John narrates, She needed to get that out of the way. Brendan's still with her in a lot of ways. But after that, everything's fine, and we drink and chat all night. Right, and he's feeling nervous as a schoolboy. He apparently really wants to make a move on her, but unlike with most women, he can't bring himself to do it. He's too worried about rejection, too worried about what she'll think. Yeah, he's too intimidated. We can tell that he really likes her because he's this nervous about it. But after the whole night of drinking, he finally gets drunk enough and he says, Um, I've been thinking. Oh, I... Well, I know what you've been thinking because it's written all over your face, and I'll tell you this, you're far too drunk. And... and you're not. Not as bad as you, son. A couple more rounds and I'd have drunk you under the table. I will never, never be out drunk by a woman. Of course not. John falls out of his seat under the table. I mean, the very idea. Now we cut to a conversation between two shady characters. Oh, man. Gotta keep an eye on these shady characters. The first time I read this, the way that this man Quincy is drawn, I literally thought that this was the first of the fallen sitting in a car having a shady meeting. He's got the same, you know, swept-back black hair, the same strong cheekbones. Yeah, but he's not nearly enough of a bastard to be the first of the fallen. In fact, he's the less bastardly of, of the two of them. Okay, so this is Carson, who is Laura's landlord, and Quincy, who is the new buyer. Carson is the one who has hired Joe Hollis to get Laura out of the bar and to burn down the pub. Right. Carson will collect the insurance money, and Quincy gets to build the health club he wants on the site. Right. Quincy was all in favor of the insurance scam, but he kind of has cold feet about using rough tactics to evict the old lady. Yeah, and as this story continues, his reticence will grow, as will his problems. Quincy's not sure they can rely on Hollis, but Carson is. He just keeps going until the job's done, no matter what the risk. The job in this case involves doing the Northampton Arms, and then cutting your sodden head off if you give me any trouble. Oh Christ, take it easy! There's no need for that kind of thing. Look, this Hollis, he's not going to hurt the old lady, is he? Dunno, that's one of the risks of this kind of thing, innit? Oh, shit, 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 shit. Why did I have to get greedy? I also think it's ironic that he wants to put in a health club where there used to be a pub. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's just, that's just pretty great. I, I feel like Ennis must have selected that as the business he would least like to see replace a great old pub. Okay, possibly. So at the end of the night, Laura lets John and Kit out of the pub. They appear to be the last ones, and she closes up. This is a scene she's seen many times, but something feels different about tonight. Feels final. Right. This time it feels like the last time. And we see... We hear a ghostly voice. What's the matter, love? Hello, Freddy. And there's her ghostly husband standing there. So it turns out that Hollis has already told Laura to be out tonight. She knows that they're planning to burn the pub down. Or she guesses it at any rate. Now, Freddy's pretty pissed about this, but it's beyond his powers to do anything. He's apparently got the charter of taking care of Laura and the pub, but not actually, like, fending off violence. Right, he says, that's all I'm allowed. 
When the pub's gone, he adds, he's going to move on. This is basically the place he's haunting, and he has to stay in it like he promised. This place means too much to too many people, and you mean too much to me to just throw it all away because some little shit says to get out. They burned this place over my dead body, Freddy. In God's name, Laura. Joe Hollis kicks down the door. What the hell are you still doing here, you stupid old whore? So, Hollis slaps Laura unconscious and has one of his goons drag her outside. Oh yeah, no, he really bashes her, because we find out later that he, uh, that he broke her jaw. Yeah, they're not nice people. Yeah, it's really disturbing to watch. Or to see, I should say. Now, we meet this bald goon. Of the assembled goons here, we are going to spend a little time with this bald goon with the swastika tattooed on his head. Yeah, he has a swastika on his head and a swastika on his jacket. He wants you to know that he's a Nazi from any angle. <laughs> At least from above and behind, anyway. He has decided that it's a good idea to resell the liquor, but Hollis tears into him quite quick. The insurance investigators might get a bit suspicious when they don't turn any of it up in the rubble, mightn't they? Pub burns down with no drink in it. What sort of dickhead are you? Christ, why don't you take the whole frigging bar? And we have this panel here of Hollis looming over Skinhead Goon, just, you know, dwarfing him three times the size in the panel. This guy's pressed down into one little corner, and we can just see that the thugs are very intimidated by Hollis. So intimidated, in fact, that in the next couple of panels we find them talking about him behind his back while he is actually standing right there. Last job Hollis did was to lean on a bloke for Mike Adams. The guy got a bit lippy, so uh, Hollis sort of cut all his fingers off. Okay, so they scatter gasoline all over the bar, and I guess their plan is to turn on the heater so that it will light the gasoline and burn the pub down in a way that looks somewhat natural. Hollis sends the other guys away and plans to finish the job himself. There's a confusing line here, because he says, I'll finish the bitch. And I guess he just means the pub, because all of the bad guys seem to have the conviction that Laura is not here, and in fact she is not. She's out in the alley. I got the impression that that meant Hollis was the only one who knew that their plan was to kill Laura, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, so it seems like she comes to, makes her way into the bar, and gets in there just in time to be blown up with the explosion. She thought of Freddy, ran for the door. And this is just brutal. We get a really horrific description of what it's like for Laura to die in the bar fire. Well, yeah, first how much pain she's already in from being hit by Joe Hollis, and then the additional pain of being burned alive inside the pub. And the first explosion of flying glass tore off her face just as she got to the bar. Something sharp punched its way between her ribs. She felt her heart rip open, coughed blood and mucus, fell. Yeah, just really horrific violence here. Yeah, it's so brutal, but so effective. Like, from a storytelling standpoint. So the bar explosion kills her, but not instantly. She's holding on here, knowing that something is missing. I'm here, Laura. I'm with you. Just let go, love. It's all over now. We see Laura's hand on fire and covered in shards of broken glass gently lay down to the ground. But it wasn't over at all, the narration tells us. Laura and Freddy were dead, and the Northampton Arms was gone. That was just the beginning. So that brings us to Hellblazer number 48, Love Kills. Same credits, except the penciler this time is Mike Hoffman. And on the cover, this time we have a burned-out pub, and we have two ghosts standing in front of it. Yeah, now there's a man ghost and a woman ghost. Do you want to talk a little bit about Mike Hoffman's pencils, or come back to that? I don't 
think I have much of any interest to say about them. Okay. Is this the art that's really bad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is the, that's basically what I was going to say, is this that is the pencils the issue are really the, bad. This is the issue with the really bad art. Where's the really bad page? I'm we'll, sure I we'll, we'll come to We'll come to some specific ones, I think. One of these pages is just the worst ever. But. Yeah, I, I complained in our last episode about Will Simpson, and Will Simpson did a perfectly competent job on the last issue. Yeah, I, I'm always worried that it's like, uh, yeah, yeah, Mike Hoffman, longtime listener Mike Hoffman, <laughs> who's been waiting with bated breath for us to finally talk about the issue he worked on. Well, I think we did a couple of issues of Swamp Thing that, that were Mike Hoffman. Oh, okay. Okay, so we open on the ghosts talking in the burning pub. Would you look at what those bastards have done to our pub, love? Would you just bloody look? Our pub. Our pub. Our pub. Our life. Our love. Our, Our love. love. <laughs> so this is a reasonably effective device. The ghosts are talking to each other at first, and Freddy has a blue speech bubble, and Laura has a pink one, and then they kind of meld together into one purple voice. One voice which has purple speech bubbles. Not, not a purple voice in the sense of Jamie Delano. <laughs> They're sort of merging from, you know, the full entities of Freddy and Laura into one spirit that is driven by rage, and that's what we're going to see for the rest of the issue. The title page is a full-page shot of the bar burning, and there's a fire truck outside with firemen arriving. The title of this issue, Love Kills, possibly a reference to the Freddie Mercury song? I think that was around the same time as this issue. Makes sense. Okay, so John wakes up on Kit's sofa. You're cute when you're asleep, do you know that? I am never cute. What the hell happened last night? She tells him that he was drunk and disorderly last night and in no shape to get to his own place, so he spent the night here. He sang a rude song, apparently. I didn't recognize the song, but we saw a little bit of it in the previous issue. A rude song about a town called Mobile. Mobile? There is a conclusion to this conversation about what happened last night on the next page. When he comes to breakfast, he says, I'm just trying to remember last night. Can't quite get it straight, if you know what I mean. Must be the drink. Oh, I wouldn't worry, John. After all, you woke up on the sofa. So there it is. He just slept on her sofa. Platonically. But he has a shower. Yeah, he thinks about how it's been a long time since he got drunk and made an asshole of himself. And how this is like a second go at youth for him. Next thing you know, I'll be growing dope plants in the window box and starting a crap punk group called Sinus Slimestring. I liked that line. Because his band was called Mucus Membrane. Right. Now John comes into the kitchen for breakfast and he recognizes a familiar smell. Sodas! Yeah, what the hell is that? He's super excited about it. What is it? Okay, we see her frying something here. and I am thinking that these are soda breads or what's called soda farls, which is a flat griddle cake which is characteristic of Ulster fry. So it's basically a small fried flatbread. Okay. Sometimes served with stuff stuffed inside. They just seem to be frying them and eating them. So it's fried soda bread. Yeah, fried soda bread. Well, that sounds pretty good. And this is the page where John has some truly awful facial expressions. As he's reaching for the soda bread here, he's got a look which I can only describe as evil. Yeah, he's diabolical. <laughs> he's planning to do some bad things to that soda bread. <laughs> Watch out, miss. He's going to steal your breakfast. <laughs> well, namely, I, I think the bad thing that he's gonna planning to do is douse it in too much ketchup, right? But that's true. She did say that he uses too much ketchup. And then when she says her line about him waking up on the sofa, he's got kind of this 
noseless, jigsaw, dumbfounded face. This is not the page that I noted as being particularly bad art, but I'm sure we'll get there. So Kit goes to work, and John goes to get himself a fish and chips. Yeah. I suppose that's the really evil thing, is that he was already thinking about the fish and chips he was going to have after this. (laughs) He's just finished breakfast. Time for lunch. (laughs) A gentleman of leisure. (laughs) Well, he's he's sort of let on that he is at this point, because he's out of the magical bullshit, and, you know, he spent yesterday doing nothing, just visited the park at around 6 p.m. and then went straight to the bar. He's sitting having his fish and chips, he's thinking about how he ought to give up looking for trouble and settle down with Kit. Yeah, he ought to work tirelessly to get her into bed, he says. Yeah, that's a good idea, John. Redirect your efforts to something positive. (laughs) At this point, Chaz happens by, shocked about what happened last night. The Northampton Arms burned down, and Laura was in it. You can give up looking for trouble if you want, Constantine. It's gonna find you anyway. So, Chaz and John visit the wreckage of the pub. Yeah, and even Chaz is able to quickly surmise, insurance job. Probably, yeah. Jesus. And they also conclude that the cops, who they refer to as the plod, are going to be useless. Yeah, also, John is easily able to deduce that Laura could have escaped, but stayed because she loved the place. And he wishes that he had listened to her troubles last night and not not dismissed her out of hand. Yeah, he sort of brushed them off and told her not to worry. He tried to reassure her, but he wasn't a hell of a lot of use. Now, when John says that the police will be no help, Chaz says, help? Why, oh, I get it. Going to play detective, are you? And then judge and jury? And with another particularly evil look, John says, For a complete prat, Chaz, you're a pretty smart bloke. Go home. He looks like Klaus Kinski. (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly it! (laughs) Oh yeah, so this is the scene where he tries to pretend to be a reporter to get information from the cop. But the cop is so dumb that he can't convince him he's from the Daily Mail because the cop's never heard of it. He has to change it to the sun. Oh, the sun with a tits in that, yeah? You're a reporter. No, I'm a frigging astronaut. It's arson, then. Somebody doing a compo job, John says, while throwing his head back in despair, like a painting of ancient Roman times. (laughs) I think this is him rolling his eyes at the cop's incompetence. Okay. Well... He looks like a biblical character undergoing great suffering. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> they dwelt in the land of Nod. <laughs> yeah, and here John says that you feel something in the air, something really creepy. You don't even have to be a sensitive. And this is the first time that we've heard this term. It won't be the last. Oh, yeah. So he can feel that there's something bad in the air that used to be good. Hate that used to be love. And he figures he had better find the culprits before this force that he can feel finds them. Okay, so now we have another meeting between Carson and Quincy. And this is the page that I wrote down that just has, like, the worst art ever. It occurs to me now that this might actually not be Mike Hoffman's fault. It's entirely possible that the reason this art is so bad is that they gave him, like, a very short amount of time to do it. You know, it could be DC Comics' fault. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very... Probable. Um, This issue has a guest penciler, and the next issue has a guest penciler, so it seems like Will Simpson was tired, or he was busy, or the issues were rushed, or something. But yeah, this page is really... Quincy has a a particularly bad, sort of long, despair face here. Carson's chair has disappeared from behind him in this shot. Well, yeah, and Quincy's face looks really long and weird, 
And Carson's face just looks like the simplistic drawing of it is sort of more on the scale of like a newspaper cartoon mm, than, okay. than a comic book. So there's another thing about the art on this page, which is that I had written down Carson's office, but it's going to turn out to be Quincy's office. So I guess what's happening in this scene, kind of a power play, is that Carson has come into Quincy's office and is sitting in his desk chair. I guess we should briefly cover the content of their conversation, although I didn't really write anything down about it. Carson is smoking happily because things have gone according to plan. But he lets slip that the old lady died in the pub fire, and that's when Quincy freaks out. For Christ's sake, Carson, that's murder! Shh. Remember where you are, son. Keep the voice down, eh? I've asked Joe Hollis to join us here this evening just to sort out a few details. Thought you ought to meet Joe, just to keep you from thinking any silly thoughts about backing out when the going gets tough. And don't forget I've still got the deeds, Quincy. Joe's quite capable of serving me your bollocks to go with them. Now we're going to cut to a snitch named Lenny Fisher. Yeah, he looks exactly like the dude from the ferry. Oh, the trucker? Yeah. (laughs) Just whenever this guy shows up, whenever this mustache shows up, he's going to have a bad time. Right. Lenny is scared that somebody is following him. He says, screw this. He hops in a taxi. Yeah, he's, he's a snitch, so he's unpopular. And he always has to look out for people who want to beat him up for snitching. He has to watch out for stitches. Oh, right. But he jumps in the cab, and John's already in it. Which, a cabbie wouldn't stop for him if the cabbie already had a passenger. I guess if John John's them. friends with all the cabbies. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, it point. seems like they shouldn't like him, actually, because he Takes wins all, all their money. money. They're very good-natured. Okay, so briefly, John knows that Hollis burned down the Northampton Arms, but he doesn't want to go head-to-head with such a dangerous criminal. So he needs Lenny to give him the name of a lesser goon so that he can find a weak link in Hollis's gang. Lenny tells him that's dangerous. John tells Lenny that he's more dangerous. Lenny tells John the goons' names, which are Del Carter and Tony McKay. And then Lenny shits himself, and so John decides to walk. Now we go to the goons' place a little bit faster than Constantine can get there. Yeah, the Nazi doesn't like that they're stuck watching Oprah. They're both surprised that the old lady died in the fire. They were pretty sure they had dragged her out of the pub. For the record, that Oprah thing was a joke. We don't find out what they're watching. Just that the Nazi doesn't like it. (laughs) okay yeah yeah so they're both surprised that laura died in the fire the one guy says he could have sworn he dragged her a good 20 yards out the back at this point Dell gets a headache and goes all empty-eyed right he just suddenly turns zombie mode he goes into the bathroom instead of bits of lung what he keeps behind his bathroom sink is a shotgun stop it Dell. it's not me tony it's not me Right. So he sticks the shotgun in Tony's mouth, and then we cut to John hearing the blast. Both barrels. Oh, Christ. That's a pretty effective cut. As John sneaks into the apartment, we see Dell go into the mirror. Not going into it, just going up to it. And he punches it to pieces, and he takes a shard of glass and stabs himself in the throat. John arrives just in time to witness this. We find John drinking off the horrific scene, and that's where we get this really good, gory description of what happened to Dell. He just kept pushing. More and more blood was coming out, pissing all over the place, and he pushed and pushed until it sliced into his brain, and I heard a click when it reached the inside of his skull, and... Whatever that was at the ruins this morning, that's what did it. You could feel it in the room. Christ, it's strong. Yeah, again, Garth Ennis not sparing on the gruesome description, and... Kind of... Painting a picture in words that you might not be able to get away with in the comic. Like, they can get away with a pretty impressive level of gore here. At least they did back in 
the fear machine. Yeah. But it's actually more effective for not seeing it. So as Constantine is sitting there getting pissed, trying to forget about what he saw, another thug kicks down the door and confronts him. It's not really clear until later in the scene, but this is John's place where he's chosen to drink away his troubles. Okay, this guy thinks that John killed the two thugs, and he is here to kick his ass. Despite the fact that he's very... Well, I think he's there to kill him, but... Despite the fact that he's incredibly angry at John for what he thinks is the murder of his two friends, he calls him a dirty frigging shit. Also on the previous page, John said, who the fuh? So, it oh. really looks like we can't use F-words anymore. <laughs> yeah, at least not now. Okay, so John demonstrates the fighting skills that you were talking about before. Which is to say no fighting skills? <laughs> Which is to say he's losing. Yeah, he breaks, he breaks his bottle and tries to use it as a weapon. But the guy easily sidesteps his attack and punches him out. John thinks to himself, You never were very good at this, were you, Constantine? That's when Kit shows up. K-Kit, get away! He'll- he'll kill you! Too bloody right! Oh, I Can I take your bag, sir? <laughs> and with that, she grabs a hold of the dude's balls. If you're in a Garth Ennis comic book, this is a top-drawer move. <laughs> this is- yeah, this is the trump card. I was just reminded that Jesse Custer used that move, I think, in our last Preacher episode. Yeah, like the last time we saw Jesse Custer, it happened. Like hitting wee girls. Well, you listen to me, wee lad. You make one wrong move and I'll tear the friggin' balls off ya. So Kit having subdued the mook, John asks where Hollis is. They learn that he is at Quincy's office to intimidate Quincy. John and Kit manage to get this guy into a cab without Kit releasing his testicles and send him off, and then they catch their own cab for Quincy's office. Look, love, when we get here, I want you to wait outside, right? You're well out of your depth. Ah, oh, you were doing really well on your own back there, weren't you? This won't be a punch-up, love. This'll be the bad shit. Yeah, so he tells her to stay out of it for her own safety. She points out that she handled it. Then they decide to switch hair colors and move to Texas. <laughs> this is exactly the Jesse and Tulip argument. And in very much the same way, Kit is the one who has shown the ability to handle herself in the previous scene. So, Carson has decided to graduate from threatening Quincy to actually sicking Joe Hollis on him. Carson wants Hollis to tell Quincy what happened to the last person who backed out of a deal. I threw him in the bath with an electric heater, and I threw his whore on top of him, and his daughters. They were twins, nine years old. They smelled like pig shit. We got a panel here, Quincy... Shedding a tear, the realization of how deep he's in. Hollis, as you can see, is a very unpleasant shit. But that's not going to matter for terribly much longer. Yeah, all of a sudden, Hollis clutches his head. He says there's a whore. And he says, get out, and Carson and Quincy are confused because they brought him to this office to have a conversation. But he is talking to the joint poltergeist of Laura and Freddy. Right, which is in his head. Yeah, he says, get out and take your frigging husband with you. But he can't control himself. He pins Carson against the wall and pulls the guy's guts out. Then he stuffs the guts into his own mouth. Right, stuffs Carson's entrails into his mouth until he chokes. And he's dead. So these ghosts are like, it really is underscoring the point that their love, the intensity of their love has turned to hate. And they are not just exacting revenge, but killing these people in incredibly gruesome ways. 
and that seems to be part of the point of it. John walks in to find Quincy staring at this scene. Laura? Laura. The ghosts have a little conversation with John. They still want to kill Quincy. Wait, Freddy. John? John Constantine? That's me, Laura. Got to tell me what you're up to. Hurt me, John. Killed me. Hurt Laura so badly. Burned our pub. Hurt our love. Our love. Revenge, because they wouldn't let us love. All we wanted. All we wanted was our love. Constantine tells them, This has to end because it's pointless. He says they won't like where they end up. Right. They keep going like this. They've turned your love into hate. Carry on with this and there'll be no going back, folks. And you won't like where you'll end up, believe me. So either they'll, you know, remain a raging poltergeist that can't move on, or they'll go to hell. Don't like hate. Don't like hurting. They're not sure what to do, but John has an idea. He orders Quincy to use his money to build a new Northampton Arms on the site that the ghosts can look after. Right, arsehole. First we're going to clean all this shit out of your office so the cleaners don't tip off the filth, and then you, me, and your checkbook are going to have a little chat. And if you end up a few cards short of the full deck in the process, that's your tough shit. John walks out into the alley and meets up with Kit, and as this scene plays, we have a bit of final dialogue from the ghosts. No good at hate, good at love. Love better. Time to rest, Laura. Love rests. Sleep now, Laura. Sleep and love. And John meets up with Kit, and they walk off together. So that last page was a little bit corny, but I like the idea that Quincy got to escape because he wasn't such a bad guy. Right, right. I liked how the ghost's dialogue becomes less coherent, less human when they're in the grip of their rage. Yeah. Like, they're turning from people into just a mindless rage monster. And that's pretty effectively conveyed by their dialogue. Yeah. So, thoughts on that one? Oh, uh, that was a good story. It's a nice little ghost story. It's kind of a disposable Hellblazer story, but that's okay. That's okay to have sometimes. Yeah, I mean, Hellblazer is a title that I think, like, one-off stories are kind of part of the point of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't mind that at all. Yeah, like a lot of Hellblazer one-offs, John has a very small role in it. Sort of. He actually has a bigger... You could have written this with a smaller role for John, where he just observes, but we do get that little bit of confusion, like mistaken identity, where the one thug thinks that he's the one who killed the other ones. Right. So, and that brings him more into contact with it. He is the one to talk down the ghosts at the end. We've seen yeah. Hellblazer stories where he really did nothing and accomplished nothing. Yeah, he really um, does nothing but observe. But. Yeah, the ghosts could have killed Quincy and John could have gone damn shame and gone on with his life. And that would be in keeping with stories that we have seen. Right. So yeah, I thought this was good. We got, you know, in addition to being a poignant ghost story and love story between Freddy and Laura, it's also a window into John's world. I mean, you know, most of the issues in some way are like uh, a window into John's world. But this is really like showing us his people, his community. Right. And it's kind of a little bit of a getting back onto the horse story for John, because he had sort of considered getting out of dealing with metaphysical nonsense after dangerous habits, and now he's decided that he, at least temporarily, he's decided that he has to step up and handle this shit sometimes. Right. Okay, so we launch into Hellblazer 49, Lord of the Dance. Same credits, except this time, guest pencils and inks by Steve Dillon! Right, yes, the majestic, legendary teaming of 
Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon. As far as I'm aware, this is their first issue together. The first issue they ever did together? I believe so. Well, I have written, yay. His art on this issue is a breath of fresh air. It is very nice. But before we get into that excellent art, let's do a little bit more making fun of art when we talk about this cover, which features uh, the (laughs) Martian Manhunter John Jones wearing a wreath with antlers on his head. (laughs) Don't be an ass. It's clearly a vampire coming out of a Christmas tree. (laughs) A vampire deer. (laughs) Maybe it's like the door to Christmas Town, and he's been in there and he shouldn't have been. And Wait, so he's coming back out. Are you positing that it's the tree that has antlers, not the vampire? No, it's definitely the vampire. <laughs> there is an antlered head with red eyes. It is emerging from a Christmas tree. I didn't make that part up. And there's a kind of a cute frame around this image depicting a bunch of Christmas decorations that are either injured or evil. Oh, yeah, that does seem to be a vampire toy soldier. A vampire toy soldier. Here's a, a half-eaten gingerbread man, sort of a, a headless doll. Oh, look, there's a bulb with a skull in it, indicating a guest appearance by the Punisher, no doubt. Well, either that or that bulb, it is a green bulb. It could be the central power battery. And oh, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that menacing face is Parallax. <laughs> so it's telling us, you know, you're in for a bit of a freaky Christmas story, mate. Yes, and the Martian Manhunter. <laughs> this issue is called Lord of the Dance. Okay, we open on John desperately searching all over London. He's been looking all day. Yeah, he's looking for Christmas presents, or maybe just one. Is it just Kit that he needs to buy for? Yeah, I don't know if he doesn't buy for the rest of the people in his life, if he's just inconsiderate in that way, which is largely in keeping with the John that we know. Maybe he sent something to Gemma and nothing at all to her parents. Well... It does seem like he's quite bad at this. Yeah, Kit Kit is the person it's hard to shop for, because as we covered a couple of issues ago, he's desperately in love with Kit and really intimidated by her. Right. I have to get her something perfect, something that's just right for her so she'll see how much I want her. It's not easy with Kit. I can't just ask her out because she makes me feel like some spotty bastard teenager. I need her to know for certain right before the very first kiss. Right, so he's just got to get her something that communicates instantly that he is in love with her and also instantly causes her to fall in love with him. No pressure. Yeah, yeah. Bit of a tall order there. He's quite the man about town. He's wearing a pink shirt. And he notes, and I'm being followed by a ghost, which doesn't exactly help matters. It's not Laura or Freddy or any of the Newcastle crew. This is a new ghost. Yeah, and we get the title here, which is Lord of the Dance, as I previously mentioned. Did you think that it was kind of setting us up to think that he was looking for something really serious and important that he would need to solve some kind of mystical mystery, and then it turns out he's shopping for a Christmas present? No, because the second narration box says that he tried the arty-farty designer places, which he's not going to find anything mystical there. Yeah, fair enough. John can smell that it's a ghost, or at least not a human. He says it seems bigger than a ghost, bigger than any individual. Right, it's bigger than an individual, almost a whole way of being in himself. Which is a great line. And Jesus, is he miserable. Cheer up, son, Constantine tells the ghost. Don't you like Christmas? Uh, you noticed me then. Well, no, I don't. I don't like Christmas at all. <laughs> Much like the Grinch, <laughs> who lived just north of Google. That's what I was thinking, too. I mean, it's what everyone was thinking. (laughs) 
Okay, so let's talk about this dude for a second. This is kind of a utilitarian character design, but I really like it. He's this big, broad-shouldered dude. He's got, you know, shaggy, messy black hair that he's not taken care of. He's got stubble, kind of an old jacket and jeans. Well, he's wearing furs. He is. He is. It's a modern-looking fur jacket, but he's still wearing furs, which I thought was a really cool touch. Yeah, so I think that they've done a very good job here, because this guy is simultaneously, like, larger than life, and really just just kind of down on his luck. Indeed. Constantine takes the Pacino tactic. Why don't I buy you a cup of coffee? Yeah, John's gonna buy him a cup of tea. And guess who gets to pay for it? Okay, come on, you've got my interest up. Actually, it was his idea, not Constantine's, to buy him a cup of tea. He, he begs a cup of tea from Constantine. They have this conversation about whether Constantine is a sensitive, which is something we talked about last issue, and it kind of seems like he is because he can smell when someone's a ghost. Yeah, I wrote, there's that word again. But Constantine insists that his supernatural talents are all learned, not inborn. I'm not a sensitive mate. I'm just dead clever, that's all. I thought for a minute here that he was going to tell the ghost that he's not a sensitive man. What's that? No, I mean just like that he's not a very good boyfriend. Oh, yeah, well... He also calls the guy Squire, which I like. (laughs) Anyway, so they sit down for a cup of tea, and this big guy who happens to be a ghost, although he's drawn to just look basically like a human. Not even basically. He looks like a human. There's nothing ethereal about him, unlike the ghosts from the last two issues. Okay, so he broaches the subject here. But he, uh, yeah, he tries the weirdest conversation, you know, awkward silence filler of all time. Have you ever heard of a song called Lord of the Dance? And then John sings. Dance, then, da dum da dum da dee I am the Lord of the Dance, said he. That's it. <laughs> I don't know if you're very interested in the origins of songs. Not a lot, to be honest. In the 1960s, a man who should perhaps remain nameless claimed to have written Lord of the Dance, but he hadn't. He'd adapted it from the original, which he then destroyed. What he produced was a song which appeared to be about the Nazarene and portrayed him as a lover of revelry and celebration, whose activities could be seen as a dance. Well, it wasn't, and he wasn't, and they couldn't. (laughs) I really like the way you delivered that line. Like, adapted is just the worst thing you can do. Okay, I want to throw out some history here. The hymn was officially written by Sidney Carter in 1963, but it was set to the shaker tune Simple Gifts, which is older than that. And it borrows the Jesus life as a dancing motif from an earlier song called Tomorrow Shall Be My Dancing Day, which dates back to at least 1833, but that can't be what our boy is referencing here because he's about to say that the lyrics are barely changed and the lyrics to that song are completely different. Also, his story definitely predates the 1800s. This guy? Yeah. Yeah, his story is very, very old. We're talking about, like, the four or five hundreds A.D., right? Yeah, something like that. Is what his story is set. Oh, another thing about this song, by the way, is that it is not in the public domain and was used in the musical Lord of the Dance without permission. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Was there a big settlement? I don't know. One more thing I want to point out here is that he calls Jesus the Nazarene, which is the same term that the First of the Fallen uses. I noticed that, yes. I don't Um, know if it's like the comics code or just good taste that prevents them from just saying Jesus, or if it's like we're going to use him as a concept in our comic book mythology, so maybe we better call him something other than Jesus Christ. 
So I intentionally didn't do any research on whether or not this story of his was true, because I felt it kind of took me out of things, but there we have it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, everybody. If you don't want to be taken out of things by my historical research, skip the previous two minutes. (laughs) Yeah, just, just use that back 15 seconds button until you're before all that stuff, and then use your forward 30 seconds button to skip it. John asks how he knows all this, and he says because the song is about him, and what was done to it was also done to him. I was the lord of the dance. Now we cut to a very Steve Dillon-ish scene of feasting and revelry in the Dark Ages. Yeah, revelry, that's a word for it. A long, long time ago, there was no Christmas. But as the year drew to a close, and the darkness of winter lay heavy on the world, and no crops grew, and the animals slept under the roofs rather than the stars, there was a feast. Although the land might be dead, the people were not, and they drank and sang and laughed and fought and screwed in the great round hall. Long into the night the celebrations went on, a mighty affirmation of light against dark and life against death. So we can see a bunch of people partying here. This guy appears to be playing the drums on this woman's ass. This guy's having sex with his pants on. This other guy's got a whole turkey, apparently all to himself, because everybody else is screwing. (laughs) Well, he's, like, trying to interest them in the turkey, and they're just (laughs) just not having it. They're having too much fun for turkey. You know why? Why? Vegetarians. Oh, okay, yeah. Now, our boy has been in the world since it was born, he says, but he was drawn to their celebrations. I heard them as they danced their dance, as they shouted to the world their message, that no matter what had happened to them, They had and ever would have but two words for those that wished them good or ill or not. I live! And he showed up at the door, dressed as sort of a heroic crusader, uh, with a crown of antlers. I don't think he is intended to be a specific Celtic god, although he strikes a somewhat Carnenos-esque figure here. Oh, sure. But yeah, he's wearing antlers. He's got a headband that holds his antlers on, so they're not his antlers. And a big barbarian surcoat, and he just looks really cool. And we get this uh, full-page splash of people partying, accompanied by the lyrics of the song. Well, yeah, they're singing. They're all singing it. Big splash page of revelers singing this song. Even this dude who's feeling up a lady's booby. Yep. And then our boy recounts the priests of the one god who was three appeared, and condemned all the good parties because it wasn't written in their rule book. Made people celebrate Christmas, the birth of their god, instead. The old ways were soon lost or hijacked and changed beyond recognition. Where once the people went to an orgy, now they went to a mass. Ever try to get drunk on communion wine? Now, in Constantine's universe, the Christian rituals have all been secretly hijacked by paganism, thanks to King Constantine, right? Well, that was the Jamie Delano canon. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's right. Different universe, because Constantine kind of undid time or something with his twin brother. Yes. When he traveled time for the future of mankind. (laughs) Yeah, nobody mentions now that, you know, that Christianity, you know, secretly works according to pagan rites, according to the Jamie Delano story, but that's not important here, and it's it's just messing with the themes of the thing. Yeah, I guess both Ennis and Delano write Christianity as to have a kind of dark secret. But whereas Delano's dark secret was that it had been secretly taken over by paganism, Ennis's dark secret of Christianity is that it kind of means to enslave everybody. Right, right. This is not a terribly unusual thematic angle to take on 
early Christianity, particularly in settings where pagan gods actually exist. The idea that they and their belief were driven out by burgeoning Christianity is really common as a thematic underpinning for stories like this. So he says he could do nothing but watch, and having seen all I could stomach, I turned and went away. The ghost goes on to explain that the Christians wrote him out of history, and he is no longer the Lord of the Dance. Ever since then, he has been the Ghost of Christmas Never. That's a poetic title. It's a pretty dorky name for yourself, pal. (laughs) He's got to make his own fun now, because nobody parties anymore in the whole world. So he walked the world being bitter for a long time. He couldn't understand why all the fun stuff had to be replaced. And then, yeah, replaced with something so cold and staid is how he describes whatever orthodox Christian practices. But then he sort of comes to an understanding. Though the people were downhearted, the lawmakers and the churchmen were happy, for the people's delight was something they had been jealous of, simply because they had no say in it. How can you order a man to feel good, or legislate for a woman's delight? That's where their power lies, in making rules. We had taken their power from them just by dancing, and that was our crime. They hated I live, for one reason alone. Nobody asked him if it was all right first. And we get two panels of John Constantine's reaction here. Yeah, he has kind of a downcast reaction, which I kind of took as, damn it, now I have to help this person. Or maybe it's just a sad story. Could be, could be. I took that as his moment of resignation that he has to get involved. So he says, right, come on then. Yeah, and he walks the ghost to a place called the Stag and Hound, which is apparently the other really great bar in Constantine's neighborhood. Yeah, well, the uh, Northampton isn't completely rebuilt yet. I like the way he describes what he's doing here, too. It's just one of those pointless gestures us little people make from time to time, just to keep us from giving up. They find Chaz inside. Bloody hell, all right, my son, how you doing? Two pints of Stella, cheers. Not bad, you hanging around here, then? Yeah, most of us are. Dave and a few others are heading home early, but I don't fancy seeing the wife till I'm paralytic. An attitude that does you credit, mate. See you later. So John gets the ghost of Stella and he says, You say the old times are gone and you can't even find a spark of them. Maybe that's true. But tonight you just watch and listen, okay? And see what you think. And they share a pint and the ghost smiles for the first time in the issue. It's been... It's been such a long time. A little later on, We find John and Chaz enjoying what the narration tells us is a good solid boozing session. How do you put into words that feeling of a good solid boozing session when the sixth pint goes down and you're locked on a collision course with that rat-arsed state that we visit in joy and leave in agony, but with vague fond memories of the night before? You don't have to describe it. Just do it. Yeah, this is a lovely sort of, a lovely piece of poetry from Garth Ennis about the joy of getting soused with your mates. Yeah, and John explains that after a few pints, it's not the meaning of Christmas that anybody cares about anymore. It becomes something more primal. I love this line. After a few pints, no one gives a shit about what Christmas means anyway. We've still got our little bit of fun where the friggers can't touch us, mate. The friggers. I didn't look hard enough, did I? It was here all the time. So, we cut to John telling the back half of an embarrassing story about Chaz. That's not how I remember it. Come back next year, fellow perverts, when Uncle John reveals what happened on the honeymoon. It's all bloody lies. Chaz accidentally spills his pint all over himself. Yeah, and then John calls everybody to their feet because he realizes it's past midnight. Everyone up off their arseholes. It's Christmas Day. 
Screw me, so it is. Merry bloody Christmas! And John says to the ghost, Don't know what you want to call it, but have a good one. First in a long time, friend. Thanks. And John and Chaz and the Lord of the Dance stand up and do a loud, raucous toast. And this is a great panel, as all of the drinkers and partiers are now in the same positions, if a bit more dressed, than the ones from thousands of years ago. Right, yeah. And the lady getting her booby grabbed kind of looks like a tulip. Oh, kind of, yeah. Tulip O'Hare from Preacher. So, John, Chaz, and our boy walk home drunk late at night. They leave Chaz on the doorstep. This is it, right? I'm not risking a face-to-face with his missus, so it's time for plan RLF. RLF? Yeah, run like fast. Chaz! <laughs> if that's you, you bloody dead! And run like fa, they do. That fa got cut off again. They yep. really can't say fa. They really can't say fa. Only I didn't say fa. <laughs> oh, man. This big toothy grin that he's got here. Yeah. Steve Dillon draws good smiles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one thing you can say about the uh, Garth and Steve Dillon pairing, is that when people have fun in their comics, it looks fun. The ghost tells John that he owes him a great debt. John says that it's his good deed for the century. Go safely, do you hear me? I'll be fine myself. I was a ghost for far too long. But the spirit of the piss-up lives again. And the lord of the dance has returned. And as he says this, he transforms from his modern-day, sort of bum-like garments back to the crowned champion of dancing and drinking figure that he was before. Yeah, and then he glows with an inner light and vanishes. Yep. So John makes his way back to Kit's, belatedly realizing now that he has never gotten her a present. You arsehole. You stupid, bleeding arsehole. You had to go and get pissed, didn't you? Oh yes, brilliant one, Constantine. Chewing himself out again, always really hard on himself when he makes mistakes. But he comes in to find Kit drinking and playing cards alone. It doesn't take much for John to admit that he forgot to get her a gift. Christ, do you know I didn't get you a present either? It didn't enter my head once. Oh, I suppose I ought to get you something like. But what would it be? Ah, I know. You ever leave me in the house on Christmas Eve again, John Constantine, I'll beat the shite out of you. And with that, she kisses him. They kiss, finally. She says, Merry Christmas, and they embrace, and we watch through the window as they undress. Outside... Two drunks are singing Lord of the Dance as they stumble home. One stops to vomit against a wall. The other promises to get him home safe. I wrote all the drunks they were singing. (laughs) Thanks, pal. You're my best mate. Did I ever tell you that? You're my best mate. Okay, I figured these two have got to be real people, but I couldn't figure out who. They sure don't look like Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon. Oh, you thought that with the detailed way their faces were drawn, they must have been... Yeah, and the, fact that, in particular. and the fact that two pages are spent on these two at the end of the story. I mean, maybe that's just telling us that, indeed, the spirit of the piss-up lives. Yeah, well, they're each other's best mates, and the narration closes the story. Cheers. All right, and that's a nice little story. Yeah, that was really fun. Kind of a charming little Hellblazer Christmas story, or maybe an anti-Christmas story, if you prefer. Yeah, it's really one of those... That's telling us that the the true meaning of the holiday season is just, you know, be with friends and family and enjoy yourself. Right, right. 
which is not a particularly uncommon sentiment these days. Well, you know, it's uh, it's cynical, and it's not a terribly pro-Christian or pro-true meaning of Christmas story, but it's not unsentimental. Right, this is true. Yes, it's not, it's not cynical. Right. It's still a story about great times and great friendships on the holiday. So I thought this was a pretty fun issue, but you saw thematic resonance between the previous two issues and this one. Well, I don't know about thematic resonance. There's definitely a running plot thread here. Oh, which is John and Kit? Yeah, exactly. Okay. They have been dancing around each other for some time, ever since they ran into each other back in the last or second to last issue of Dangerous Habits. And we can see that Kit is interested in John as much as he is interested in her, and he's very slow to act on it and, and, and needs a helping hand. <laughs> right. But but yeah, these three issues tell the story of them figuring it out and actually getting together. And I really, I kind of find that more interesting than than the ghost story in 47 and 48. Just the underlying through line of the John and Kit relationship. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, the soap opera-ish aspects are always one of the things that keeps you coming back about comic books. True, true enough. There's a complexity to this relationship. They're definitely both kind of longing for what they see as a good time in their past. The time when John and Kit and Brendan were friends. And yeah. They, you know, and the great old days that they had. And John and Kit have both kind of said in, in issue 47, I think, that they don't they don't settle down well. They don't move forward well in their lives. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, I'm I'm pulling for them, but I I think there is a an aspect of this relationship that it may not be founded on an entirely healthy foundation. Maybe the implication is just that they've been waiting to end up together, but maybe not. I like that the complexity is there and I like that the way that they develop from good old friends into lovers feels genuine. Right. What do you think of the Lord of the Dance as a one-shot guest character? Oh, I thought he was a great character. I've always found that song to be kind of dorky, (laughs) which makes it kind of weird to write an issue around, but whatever. It's fine. It's fun. Yes, that song which I now must choose a recording (laughs) of. Oh, yeah, I guess you have to, don't you? Did you have a Constantine moment? I did. I did have a Constantine moment. This is my Constantine moment. Is at the end of 48, there could be a new Northampton Arms where the old one was. People could drink and laugh and love all night, just like in the first pub. And if you want, you can stay and look after it, just like always. This is like the meta-Constantine moment, where he is using all of his considerable talents and a not inconsiderable amount of help from the narrative itself Not to do nothing, but to make sure that nothing changes. (laughs) Well, my Constantine moment, this is more of a a Jamie Delano thing, but maybe the torch has been passed to Garth Ennis. Mm -hmm. As you know, women, inconceivably, want to sleep with Constantine wherever he goes. Okay. This set of three issues ends with Constantine coming home, you know, probably just smelling awful and having neglected Kit all night. And what does she want to do? Sleep with him. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, it's true. It's all true. That that sort of beautiful romantic moment. He's actually got a stink of cigarettes and booze. Yeah, that beautiful romantic moment was actually a Constantine moment. Do all any, right. Do you have anything else to add? I think that covers the facts. <laughs>
Uh, so we leave you for the year on this charming Christmas time, if not Christmas tale. Merry Christmas to all of you out there in Listenerville, and happy holidays. Merry Christmas, everybody. Hey, before we forget, we got a very nice holiday plug from What's Lightsaber's Precious, specifically from uh, from Neil Gaiman over on their show. <laughs> um, and this being our kind of holiday episode, I wanted to return the favor. Just in case you didn't know, What's Lightsaber's Precious is... Um, well, how would you describe it? It is a terrific deep dive lore podcast about Lord of the Rings and Star Wars in which our friends Joanna and Ryan explain to the other why they love the things that they love. Yeah, it's great for nerds, uh, which you are if you're here. You just are, and it's time you, <laughs> time you faced that. <laughs> if nothing, we can spend this Christmas giving you a bit of a revelation about yourself. Yeah, yeah. And if you enjoy laughing, it's a good show. Oh, man. There's a bit in, like, episode five, the breakup of Shalob and Morkoth that had me laughing for, like, five minutes flat. It's a good show. Another good show is Vertigais, the show you're listening to now, which is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you can check out our website at vertigais.blueberry.com. That's V-E-R-T-I-G-U-Y-S dot B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you want to contact us, you can at me on Twitter, at Vertiguys, and you can reach me at BlankCastSean. You can send us an email, vertiguys at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you want to leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast listening software you use that would be greatly appreciated and just in general tell your friends uh help spread the word about vertigais but as always thanks for listening thanks everybody the spirit of the piss up lives again well jimmy blight i'm on again the pub where i was born he played it from the night time to the pace of early morn he served the souls of psychos and the men who had the horn and they all left very happy in the Jimmy didn't like his place in this world of ours Where the other man brought Stormers next And he had too many pairs So it's sad to see the grieving of the people that I'm leaving And he took their all for God knows in the morning Bad guy's name is Constantine And he looks like Sting and he's blonde And he's got, okay The bad guys are called Trinity And they serve the, you know, the Holy Trinity They're basically the militant arm of the church Or a militant arm of the church Or, you know, an evil conspiracy that serves the church In their view Okay. Um, he's got functioning stigmata. And almost as soon as I heard him, you know, in his audio diaries be like, I have stigmata. I was like, oh, it's going to turn out somebody poked him with a knife to make him think that. And? Well, and about halfway through the game, like, he gets mad at Laura Croft and his hands just start bleeding spontaneously. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. No, I, I feel like if the guy you're up against has stigmata, it's just like, okay, well, that's it. <laughs> Like, you're done. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you're clearly wrong. <laughs> Nobody ever, like, notices that their opponent is Jesus Christ and is like, I'm actually going to back down. Right, yeah, like, oh, oh, you were chosen specifically by God for how great you are. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll just put this back then. <laughs>